The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 14th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday 25th of November, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the world's population surpassing 8 billion people, the final agreement that came out of COP27, and the controversies surrounding the Football World Cup currently being held in Qatar. Let's get started right away with the first series of editorials. We begin by talking about a historical milestone for humanity. According to statistics provided by the United Nations Department of Economic and Social Affairs, last November 15th marked the day on which the world's population surpassed 8 billion people. An impressive number, which is even more striking when compared to the fact that in 1950s there were about 2.5 billion of us. Also, according to some data, 1 billion have been born in the last 12 years alone, between 2010 and 2022. The pace of growth has been decreasing in recent years. The world's population is expected to peak at about 10 billion around 2080, before beginning a slow decline. Most of the world's population lives in Asia. Of the current 8 billion, three of these live in China and India. And India's population is expected to surpass China's within a year. In both of these countries, however, population growth has already been slowing for some time, while it continues to grow in sub-Saharan African states. The population of this area of Africa is expected to double in 30 years from now. The first article on the growing number of people in the world comes from Southern Europe and the newspaper El País. According to the editors, the evolution of economic and social development have lifted billions of human beings out of poverty in recent decades. Although large disparities persist between first and third world countries, Half of the world's current population lives on more than $12 a day. This threshold is also expected to be reached by another 2 billion people by 2035. However, the population growth is not uniform. It is the poorest countries that are growing the most, and an increase in material well-being corresponds to a decrease in the birth rate. The best evidence for this is China, where the people over 60 are expected to make up 30% of the population by 2035. From this perspective, China's rapid growth in per capita wealth has caused its birth rate to align itself with that of wealthy Western countries, with 1.3 children on average per woman. While women in rich countries give birth to the amount of children that they want, the opposite is true in poorer countries. Lack of freedom, economic dependence, and lack of family planning mean that they have more children than they want. Africa, in this respect, represents the biggest demographic bomb in the coming years. We must therefore, the journalists conclude, encourage education and development, the only tools that can slow the birth rate of an already huge planet. But it is not only new births that are driving population growth, points out Danny Dorling, professor of human geography at Oxford University. His editorial was published in Britain's The Guardian. Most of our population growth is not due to births, but to most of us living much longer, the professor explains. The world's life expectancy growth peaked in 1981, when the global average was 61 years, 
Since then, the rate of increase has been slowing down. This is not to say that we will live less, but rather that the rate of increase in average life expectancy is becoming increasingly uniform throughout the world. Evidence that greater longevity leads to population growth is also found in the birth rates of individual years. Birth rates peaked in 1990, Dorling notes. Since then, they have been declining. There were about 8 million fewer births in 2022 than in 1990, compared with a large increase in the number of potential parents. Rather than global population growth, inequality, greed and waste are the real problems of our time. If wealthier countries want to raise birth rates, they need to realize the full social and economic potential of all citizens, including migrants and their families. When we talk about the growing number of people on the planet, this is often linked to the climate crises. A myth that endures, argues Samira El Wasil, a columnist for the German newspaper The Spiegel, with whom we close this first part. It is often said that there is too many of us on Earth and that the growth in the number of human beings should be curbed. But the implications of this argument are racist and anti-poor. By its very nature, population and birth control is an authoritarian tool, since it would put in the hands of a few people the power to decide who lives and who does not. There are too many of us, it is often said, but too many for what? For the available resources? For the areas available? If we look at the population produced, the countries with the highest birth rates are responsible for only 3.5% of all CO2 emissions, while accounting for 20% of the world's population. The countries with the fastest growing populations are also among the least wealthy in the world, and therefore the ones where people consume the least resources per capita. So each new birth hardly affects the climate crises. Also supporting El Wasil's argument is an intergovernmental panel on climate change report that population growth is minimally related to the climate crises. What is certain is that pollution is due to the production and consumption model of industrialized countries. For the German columnist, the idea that there are supposedly too many people in the world fails to take into account the inequalities between the industrial power of the global north versus that of the South. It also reproduces racism towards poorer countries and does not help us reflect on how to achieve climate justice. The question we should ponder, El Wasil concludes, should not be how many should we be, rather how can we live well together on Earth? The second part of this podcast returns to a topic we have followed in past episodes, the COP27. The summit, organized by the United Nations, is held every year and its theme is the fight against climate change. This year, the meeting was held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and wrapped up at the end of last week. The agreement signed by the participants provides for the establishment of a fund called Loss and Damage. Through this fund, industrialized countries pledge to help developing countries economically when they are affected by extreme events due to climate change. These extreme events can be either sudden, such as fires and floods, or slower processes, such as rising sea and ocean levels. While the establishment of this fund is certainly positive news, there is another side of the coin. No agreement has been reached on the elimination of fossil fuels, 
in favor of renewable energy sources. It was not a useless COP, and it would be wrong to dismiss it as a failure, writes Ricardo Luna, columnist for the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, with whom we begin the second part. Some call the agreement reached on the loss and damage fund small, but for Luna, it is not. It is only 31 years late. Luna recalls that it was first proposed back in 1991 by a representative of the Alliance of Small Island States. This alliance is an intergovernmental organization representing 39 small states, all of which are at great risk due to rising sea levels. Of this COP27, in short, one fundamental principle will remain. The polluter pays, states the journalist. The decision follows the principle of climate justice and acknowledges the responsibility of the United States and the European Union, which are among the largest contributors to climate change and its effects. The failure to agree on the discontinuation of the use of fossil fuels, however, signals a willingness to want to buy a better climate, a short-sighted response as the consequences of the crisis can increasingly be felt even in industrialized countries. Today, we have all the tools, economic and technological, to change the energy paradigm. Another world is still possible, the columnist concludes. More pessimistic, however, is Michel de Moulinaire, a Belgian journalist for the Le Soir newspaper. While not underestimating the material and symbolic importance of the creation of the Loss and Damage Fund, for the Moulinaire, COP27 was a missed opportunity. The outcome of the summit held in Egypt, the Moulinaire warns, in no way allows for the reversal or even slowing down of the dramatic developments that are plunging the world towards warming with increasingly severe impacts. The fund provides reparations for the countries most affected by the climate crises. But some damages are often difficult to measure. Over the long and short term, the climate crisis damages agriculture, changes the amount and frequency of rainfall, alters the soil and erodes coastlines. The fund is a positive sign of solidarity, but it must be followed by other, more radical decisions. For if we continue on the current trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions, if we do not break free from the dependence on fossil fuels, whole areas of the planet will become uninhabitable. With dramatic consequences for industrial countries as well, the Belgian journalist concludes his article with a metaphor. We agreed to pay for the damage caused by the overflowing bathtub, but we didn't have the courage to turn off the dripping faucet. We remain in a French-speaking country for today's final contribution on COP27, and we'll go to France's Le Monde newspaper. The French editorial board draws a conclusion on the Sharm el-Sheikh summit, arguing that the final agreement oscillates between historic and a drop in the ocean. Sometimes the distance between two such opposing opinions can be really tenuous. On the one hand, a message of hope and solidarity was conveyed with the realization that all countries of the world must participate in the fight against climate change. On the other hand, there is irritation aimed at the fact that the majority of states are not willing to make the paradigm shift that would really be needed. As we heard in the first editorial in this section, it took 30 years for the global north to take responsibility. But how many more years will it take for China, the world's second largest power and among the largest producers of greenhouse gases, 
to stop considering itself an emerging country and start contributing to this principle of global solidarity. How many years will it take to make this new mechanism work and invest the promised resources? We also need more proactive participation from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, so that funding is allocated to the decided goals. If the EU has decided to carve out a leadership role on climate, the Persian Gulf states, China and India still refuse to abandon polluting energy sources. As long as commitments on the subject are not more stringent, the French journalist writes, the international community can always ease its conscience by setting ambiguous targets that have no chance of being achieved. The editorial closes by already looking ahead to COP28, which will be held next year in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. For the next UN Climate Summit to be the historic breakthrough we have all been waiting for, there needs to be an understanding that we are already late and that the politics of small steps has come to an end. The last series of editorials of the day focuses instead on the World Cup, currently underway in Qatar. The competition began only last Sunday, but it was preceded and still accompanied by intense criticism. Criticism of the competition mainly concerns two issues. The first is a discrimination against LGBTQ people. In the Arab country, homosexuality is a crime punishable by law. The other issue concerns migrants and their working conditions, a large number of whom participated in the construction of the stadiums where the matches are held. According to an investigation published by the British newspaper The Guardian, some 6,500 workers reportedly died from 2010 to 2021 while working on the stadium's construction. To date, Qatari authorities have officially acknowledged the deaths of only three workers. The first article comes from Italy, from the newspaper La Repubblica. Columnists Tito Boeri and Roberto Perotti point the finger at FIFA, the international federation that governs soccer. FIFA could have avoided the deaths of thousands of migrant workers if it had not awarded the World Cup to Qatar, the two authors argue. Indeed, when the World Cup was awarded to Qatar in 2010, the working conditions of migrants were well known to FIFA. Moreover, almost all FIFA members in favor of awarding the World Cup to Qatar are being investigated, if not already arrested for corruption. But going back to the workers, one cannot even argue that they would have died anyway given the generally poor working conditions in Qatar. The need to complete construction works on time under prohibitive conditions would be the main cause behind the countless deaths. For his part, FIFA president Gianni Infantino accuses the West of hypocrisy. For what we Europeans have done in the last 3,000 years, we should apologize for the next 3,000 years before giving moral lessons to others. It is true that the past World Cup was held in Russia, but some cases are more egregious than others. The columnists are also keen to point out that Putin's approval rate peaked after another major sporting event, the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Not coincidentally, the invasion of Crimea began four days after the end of the Games. This World Cup too, the article concludes, will serve to legitimize the dictatorship of those responsible for the deaths of thousands of immigrants. Of a completely different opinion, however, is journalist Dunya Ramadan of Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung. Europe's criticism of Qatar is correct, but it sounds very self-righteous, she writes. 
There was also widespread criticism when other sporting events, like the Olympics or other World Cup editions, were held in countries such as China and Russia. But at the time, they never had the resonance they are having now against Qatar. The West seems to have no problem doing business with the Gulf country, so why does it only notice its poor track record on human rights when it comes to the World Cup? Also absent from the debate is a recognition of the global and post-colonial realities for which Europe and the West are responsible. For example, among the reasons for migration that brought so many people to Qatar, there are corruption, lack of educational opportunities, wars and climate change. In Europe, the fate of migrants seeking work only matters if it doesn't happen on their doorstep, argues Ramadan. According to a report by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 21,500 people have died in the Mediterranean Sea since 2014, many more than those who died in Qatar building stadiums. With this, the columnist concludes, she does not want to absolve Qatar, rather to remind that humane treatment of migrants is not an established reality in Europe either. The last article in this episode takes us across the channel and to the British newspaper Financial Times. The paper's editorial staff looks at yet another aspect of the thorny issues that have emerged with this World Cup. Thanks to the competition bringing Qatar in the spotlight and the efforts of activists and journalists, now the lack of human rights in the Arab state has become part of the public debate. This has already forced the country's authorities to improve the rights of foreign workers by changing the kafala system. The kafala imposes migrant workers to find a sponsor to be able to legally stay in the country, usually the employer. The latter is responsible for their visa and thus their legal status. It is a practice that, according to several human rights organizations, creates easy opportunities for exploitation. Now, with recent changes, it has been overhauled and workers' rights are now better than in its neighbors in the conservative region. It may not be much, but it is still a step forward. With the eyes of the world on it, it will be difficult for Qatar to maintain its carefully constructed facade. The hope must be that the legacy of the tournament remains positive even when the world has moved on. The editorial concludes on a hopeful note. We've now reached the end of this 14th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you again next Friday with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's Gail Rago. See you next week.